on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jen Howell. Dr. Howell is a clinical psychologist with over a decade of experience working with evidence-based therapy protocols. She's also a survivor of suicide, having lost her mom to suicide when she was only 13 years old. Uh, before I get too far into this introduction, I do want to provide a specific trigger warning for this episode. Um, Jen and I get into some of the more graphic details that surround losing a loved one to suicide, including the specific methods that were used by her mother as well as my dad. And I could see how some of the conversation could certainly be challenging for someone who has lost a loved one in a similar way. Um, on this episode, Dr. Howell and I talk about what it was like losing her mom to suicide when she was only 13, how being a motherless daughter has impacted her life and her view on motherhood. We also talk about the conversations that we are used to having as survivors of suicide loss, the anger that comes along with losing a loved one to suicide, and finally, we talk about some of those evidence-based therapy protocols, including acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, and how they could benefit someone who has been impacted by suicide. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's better betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Jen, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It's funny. I could probably throw a stone and hit your house, I feel like, but here oh, we really? are. I'm, wow, I'm not far. Awesome. But here we are on Zoom. That's the way mm -hmm. things are done. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot on my mind today for this conversation. I'm I'm really excited to have it with you. There's a question I like to start with. Mm -hmm. um, understanding the loss of your mother, which is something I'm sure we'll get into in more detail today. I'm wondering if you could share with us what is the most important or some of the most important things that you've learned either from your mom uh, in the time she was here or from the loss of her to suicide? Well, you know, I could probably, if I ever decided to uh, write a book, I could write a book about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and my thoughts are different every time I ask myself, that question. Um, mm. So I was 13 when my mom passed and uh, the way my memory works, um, I have a smattering of memories uh, from when she was here, which is surprising to me because, you know, many people 
have lots of memories before age 13. Um, but there is something about the nature of the loss that seemed to really filter uh, how I remember my mother, um, what specifically I remember about her. Um, and so I feel like I've actually been trying to answer that question for myself ever since she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, so, so I was thinking about, you know, what have I learned? Um, I think one big thing I've learned is, um, you know, I'm now a mother. I have two daughters. Uh, my mother, my mother had three daughters and, uh, you know, I, I find her, the, the memory of her, her presence comes up um, in really surprising ways uh, as I'm figuring out parenting. Um, there's a, there's a uh, I don't know what you call it, you know, and a, a label out there um, for those of us, we call ourselves motherless daughters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, because so much of parenting and mothering um, is, or can be at least a reflection of what we experienced um, growing up. Either we want to emulate a lot of it or we're trying to repair um, a lot of it or do things differently um, in our own lives. And I find myself doing both. Um, And I I would say one one big thing I've learned from her is the impact of suicide um, on children and how, you know, how mindful I am very imperfectly. So I'm not saying I'm mindful in such a way that like I, you know, I'm only the best parent to my kids, um, far from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am aware of how my emotions um, are displayed to them and what kind of sense they're making of those emotions. Um, because I can be a very emotional person and mm-hmm. yet, um, you know, I remember from my mom not, not knowing that she was such an emotional person until she passed. Mm. <laughs> it was it was actually um, a big surprise uh, to me in some ways, but maybe not in others, um, that she would have chosen to die by suicide. And, uh, you know, I think one question that I still haven't answered, and I don't know if I ever will, is... Um, you know, that I think is uniquely, this is me as a child of somebody who died by suicide rather than a clinician. You know, clinician me would say something different here or have some other response, but child me doesn't understand Mm. how you leave your children um, like that. And so that's what's forefront in my mind um, because I struggle with suicidal thoughts, um, not by choice. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they pop up. Um, Luckily, I mean, I've been lucky in that I haven't, um, they haven't led to, um, you know, me making a plan or attempting suicide, Um, but they do pop up. Um, And I don't know if that's because of the way my mom passed or um, we share uh, a certain way of looking at the world sometimes, maybe both. Um, but, uh, you know, I live with those and, you know, but the immediate answer I have is the impact of it and knowing that that is not something I would ever wish on um, my children and, you know, focusing on my love for them as well as my love for, you know, other aspects of my life that are pretty good. Um, you know, my mother... I can get into this a bit later because I think some of your other questions relate to this. Um, she, I, 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 I don't know much about her as 
a person. I know much, I know her, you know, how she was as a mother. And um, I know what my grandmother, her mother, who kind of um, took over some parenting after my mother passed and was very close to us. Uh, I know what she said about my mother, um, which is basically uh, that she always centered her life around um, parenting us and that she wanted, you know, and, and tried to be a very good mom. And um, she was, she was very creative. Uh, she threw really great birthday parties for all of us. She would hand make our Halloween costumes. Wow. Um, I had a really awesome aerial Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so, uh, and I wish I knew where it was. I don't know where it ended up, but um, she, she was a very creative, very intelligent person. Um, and I now know, I think she was very, she had a lot of strong feelings inside and was dealing with a lot of dynamics um, in the adult sense that I would never have understood um, as a kid uh, and, and not really as a 13 year old. Um, but I know that there, she was definitely dealing with a sense of, you know, I need um, needing to be, you know, kind of measure up to certain expectations, both perceived in the society we lived in. We were living in Raleigh, I grew up in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, that I think we're part of her family culture, you know, part of the culture that was put on her growing up. She was the middle of two brothers. And um, even my grandmother will say this, um, or she has recently passed, but she would say this all the time, um, that my mom never gave any issues. You know, it was her brothers that mm -hmm. had, uh, according to my grandmother, again, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. had, that needed more attention, um, needed more help. And my, my mother, um, from my grandmother's point of view, was always doing okay, mm -hmm. you know, getting good grades and not getting in trouble and trying to um, live her life, I think, by the standards that my grandmother kind of wanted for her. And my grandmother had, uh, you know, she was pretty strong, strong opinion, strong willed about, yeah. uh, you know, uh, etiquette and, you know, who's the, you know, the kind of person that you marry and mm -hmm. um, keeping up with the Joneses type of thing. <laughs> Yeah, And, uh, you know, I think my mother tried in many ways um, to meet that. And I do think that played a role um, in how she might have ended up feeling um, when she passed. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really great answer. I appreciate you sharing with mm -hmm. me about what you do remember about your mom and some of yeah. what what your initial reaction and reaction now, I believe, 25 years later has been, uh, you know, coming to terms with and coping with her loss. You touched on a lot of things that I think I'd like to pull on further. You, you mentioned your mom being an intelligent and creative person, and that's definitely a pattern I'm starting to recognize here as I'm doing this work is it seems mm -hmm. like individuals who often make the choice to complete suicide are very intelligent, creative people, and often highly emotional people who internalize a lot of their experience. So that makes sense that your grandmother, to, to your grandmother, your mom was never a problem because it's mm -hmm. likely she was internalizing a lot of what she was going through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing you touched on that I'd, I'd like to hear more from you about is this concept of being a motherless daughter. And I appreciate mm -hmm. you putting it in that context. I've never 
thought of myself as a fatherless son, but I guess that's what it is. And what I, what I realized in losing my dad is that I don't understand what that was like for my mom or for my grandma who's still with us today or for my sister. I know what it's like to be a 26, 25 year old man and lose my dad. I don't know Mm -hmm. what it's like to be in my mom or my sister's shoes or in your shoes as as a young girl who lost her mom. Can you take us through some of the nuances that you think come along with not just being a motherless daughter, but being a 13 year old girl having to start to come to terms with your mother's suicide? That is, yeah, I can try. Um, You know, so I guess to give a bit of background, um, you know, growing up when I was younger, I think maybe when I was like in second or first grade, I I distinctly remember having the thought, um, my family is so boring. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was karma. (laughs) (laughs) my family was definitely not boring I was very ignorant to the ways in which it was actually very um exciting uh so one thing I will say is that my parents were very good at never having conflict in front of me and my sisters um Mm. and they might not have had much conflict up until the last few years uh but you know, I, I distinctly remember, you know, not really having a clue um, until the last year um, that anything was wrong. Um, and so I very much had a mother <laughs> active in my life for quite a bit of my childhood. Um, and what I remember about it was that um, my mom, I think she was trying to individuate herself a bit from the high expectations that her mother had for her, but was mm. also repeating a lot of it. And so she had high expectations for me. Um, mm-hmm. I remember she wanted very badly for me to test into the gifted program at my elementary school and I wasn't getting in. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. I was, I was, I, I was in elementary school. I think I was an average student, you know, um, maybe my mom saw evidence of higher intelligence in me that I didn't notice, or maybe she really just wanted me, um, to be, you know, kind of have that label. Um, but I remember as I grew a little older, like I was a kid who liked to wear shorts and pants and like casual, she wanted me to wear dresses and skirts as I was getting into like fifth grade and, and sixth grade. And, um, I I remember, I distinctly remember before again, I knew anything was wrong, um, that I wasn't, she wasn't happy with me. Mm. <laughs> Not in the sense that she didn't love me, but um, I remember she was having body image issues at first of her own. She was, um, she was uh, unhappy with weight that she had gained. And I was a very, very skinny kid. Um, mm-hmm. I was just a complete beanpole. And I think some of it was just going through growth spurts. You know, it was just like a thing that happened to me. But um, she was very, I think she was very triggered by um, how I looked and how she looked. And she would make comments about that. Um, and so again, you'll notice, I hate this, but um, a lot of my memories of her are not great. And that's not because I think that they were all not great. Um, But I had trouble connecting to and trusting like more positive memories. And this is kind of where I get like emotional. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I would say um, about a year before she passed, um, 
I did become aware and she, she basically drew away um, from all of us. Uh, she had been dealing with a lot of chronic pain. Um, she had uh, chronic migraines. She had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And keep in mind, this was in the 90s. Um, and there wasn't a lot for people with fibromyalgia back then. Um, maybe not even a lot for people with migraines um, and chronic pain, especially women. Yeah. Um, I, I like to joke that when women go to the doctor, we're diagnosed as being a woman. We don't get a lot of answers. There's, you know, a lot of medical research is done on male bodies. And so there's still a lot we don't understand um, about women's pain and how it affects our brains and all sorts of things. And so she was dealing with a lot of that um, in a severe way in the year before she passed. And she ended up spending, started spending a lot of time in bed. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I know this is not necessarily from my memories, but I kept a sporadic journal during my childhood. Um, and I, I still have it. And, uh, I would look through the entries and they would all be typical. Like I would write little silly short stories, or I would recount a day that was really happy or it would have normal, like, Oh, you know, I had two sisters, like me and Emily are friends today, but me and Jamie are not. And then the <laughs> next day, <laughs> me and Jamie are friends today and we are not. <laughs> lots of triangulation. So it yeah. was kind of normal. It was normal stuff, right? You could see in my entries that I wasn't preoccupied, but like nothing was hitting my radar with like my mom's functioning, my dad's functioning, none of that. Mm. And then the last year there are, um, it's hard to read because I didn't actually go back and read these entries for years. I didn't, re I didn't think anything was relevant. Yeah. <laughs> I went back and read it. And um, there's a, there's an entry where I start talking about um, how my mom is really sad and uh, that she and dad are having some kind of fight and um, that everything's different you know, and that I, you know, it's, it's really painful to read because it goes this like marked. So, um, so I kind of started living that life before she passed a bit, but didn't know it. Um, yeah. I remember like my school pictures that year, like my hair isn't brushed, <laughs> like my clothes, she would pick out my outfits and stuff for like school pictures. Like she obviously didn't do it that year. And so it kind of started like before she passed and um, I don't know, I didn't identify as a motherless daughter. And of course we, you know, you have a father, I have a mother. It's not that we're actually parentless, but without having the active person in our lives, I think is what it's referring to. And, um, you know, I feel like I went through adolescence and, you know, up until today, um, you know, really wanting, really wishing I had um, that kind of resource in my life, like not knowing, like, how would my mom have handled this? Um, what would she think of what I'm doing as a career? Um, you know, there's all kinds of questions I have, like, down to like, what would I be doing if she was still here? Mm. Maybe I wouldn't be a therapist, you know, maybe I would have continued not testing into the gifted program. Yeah. <laughs> you know, butter, like, butterfly effect kind of deal right yeah yeah, yeah. I, it's a big question for me how um because we were clearly clashing more um and who knows if that would have resolved if she had resolved her depression or um you know maybe it would have improved but like the direction it was going like i it was not going in a great direction mm. and so um you know i think 
I think that was uh, a change that kind of, I guess, for me, like it gave me more freedom as a motherless daughter to define myself and make my own decisions. And I, as a result, I am very different. Like I've kind of, um, I'm very different than other members of my family. Uh, I've made different choices. Um, I, you know, I have tattoos and you know, mm -hmm. they don't and, you know, stuff like yeah. that. Uh, and I'm definitely, um, other members of my family have used mental health services, but my, I don't come from a family culture of like mental health services are great and everybody right. should get them. It's kind of like, I heard that in therapy. <laughs> you exactly, <know>? exactly. <laughs> and antidepressants cause all sorts of bad things, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I definitely have broken free from that mold, um, and so, yeah, I guess my roundabout answer to your question is that I feel like a lot of who I am today is because I didn't have um, a mother around for the rest of my adolescence and my adulthood uh, giving input into my choices. Um, and, you know, I think I benefited from that in a weird way. Uh, but I also think I lost a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. <You. laughs> I would yeah. rather have, you know, I would rather have her here um, than anything that I could say is, you know, the butterfly effect from her loss. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I see, I think for me, you know, when I was going through high school, it was hard for me to see, um, you know, my friends all, I didn't have a friend that had lost a mother um, that I can recount or recall like during that time. And yeah. Um, they all had very active mothers, you know, and their mothers were awesome and would, you know, they, they would be very nice to me too. And, um, and it was, it was just, it kind of felt like I was on the outside looking in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't want to turn on and on, but, um, my dad became pretty uninvolved too. He, he decided to, um, get attached to a new relationship actually pretty soon after my mother passed and I have never quite clicked with um with her with my stepmother and so I just kind of continued being <laughs> a motherless daughter um up until now so I think you know navigating parenthood as a motherless daughter is an interesting experience I kind of feel like I'm doing everything for the first like of course I'm doing it for the first time but like I'm also kind of like Am I doing this well? Like, I don't know. You know, like, what is it like to, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. uh, you know, not have that feedback, um, to not have that support? Um, that being said, my mother-in-law is awesome. And she is definitely very helpful and has kind of stepped into that role in terms of grandparenthood and, and, and that kind of resource. Um, and it's still different, you know. Um, so... So yeah, I I don't know. Like uh, one common theme for me, um, you know, since lo losing my mom is I've really struggled to find a community or identify myself in a way that I'm like, okay, that is who I am. Um, and so uh, even the concept of motherless daughter or even suicide survivor, like I haven't, um, my story is that I just haven't, those resources were not available to me. Um, when my mom passed, I was not aware of them. And um, I, you know, I, I think I got to grad school before I was, before I realized that there was a community of people <laughs> that talked about it openly. 
and uh, identify. So, so, so when I was listening to your previous interviews, I was noting that difference for myself is that, you know, I haven't, you know, my story, I'm still trying to find a community or trying to decide if I want to be in a community. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thank thank you for sharing that. Um, you, mm -hmm. you you shared about what the experience has been like now being a mother yourself, integrating mm -hmm. not the lessons you learned just from your mom growing up, but from losing her at such a young age. And and full disclaimer, I am not a father. I have a dog and like seventy house plants. But mm -hmm. I feel like now having hindsight, because my my dad was a very closed off person emotionally. Um, it was often a guessing game of what what is dad feeling? Mm -hmm. um, I think I've learned a lot of lessons from his loss by putting together the pieces of what his experience must have been like versus what he actually put out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, so one of those things that I really try to do is be honest and authentic about where I am emotionally without it being a wrecking ball that affects other people in a negative way. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other lessons I learned uh, really from the time I was a child, but watching my dad struggle with alcohol is I don't want to do that. Whatever that is, I don't like that. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't want to have that struggle. And then of course I ended up having that struggle, but um, am, you know, now feeling like I'm on the other side of it because of the lessons I learned from losing my dad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you touched on, I think, quite a few of your, your mom's risk factors in the year leading up to when she made the choice to take her life. It sounds like she was dealing with some depression. She had mm -hmm. some external pressures in her life, maybe from her mother and uh, from other places as well. She was dealing with chronic pain. What, are there any others that come to mind that maybe we, we haven't discussed and I'm curious what you think now, being able to look back on it, what, what her primary risk factor was or what her greatest source of pain was. You know, I wished for years I could ask her that question. Mm. She didn't leave a note. Um, and so we don't have, um, none of us have an explanation or even the hint of when um, she didn't tell anybody. Uh, she'd ever um, made gestures uh had not attempted that i knew about in the past um didn't i mean didn't talk about it uh like you know some of the warning signs we know as clinicians is if people talking and they seem to be fixating on death or they've um you know they have suicidal thoughts that they're acknowledging again this is all dependent on them being in therapy um, mm -hmm. my mom was not in therapy uh, she was seeing doctors for the chronic pain and migraines and she was on an antidepressant for a time Mm -hmm. um, however, my grandmother was very against antidepressants. And so that was another, uh, you know, voice in her ear, I'm sure. Um, I think the tipping point for her was marital issues with my dad. And I don't say that, um, another theme that's come up in my family culture is the idea of blame for suicide. Oh, yeah. And, yep. um, I in no way think it's fair to blame suicide on anybody else. Mm -hmm. um unless it's a case where somebody's like intentionally like encouraging somebody to to uh choose to cope with life that way um yeah. so um there was a lot of blame um out in the aftermath um between my grandmother mostly from my grandmother who had a lot of difficulty understandably coping with the fact that my mom had chosen suicide 
Um, and a lot of it was directed at my dad um, because uh, she was aware that they were having marital issues, were, were likely on the road to divorce, um, but had not actually chosen, you know, or decided to do that. And um, I believe from what I can tell, uh, my mother, because of her disabilities, um, because of the pain, um, she was having, I think she had had to quit. She had gone back to nursing. She was a nurse. She had gone back to nursing part-time, but I believe had to leave the job because the um, her physical issues were becoming too difficult to deal with. And so I believe that she was kind of looking at a future where how am I going to afford to be a single parent um, to three children? Uh, and again, I don't know, none of this was said to me, um, but uh, that is a known fact that they were having issues that um, money was part of it. And uh, you know, that, they, that there was not, it didn't seem like there was a reconciliation on the horizon. Um, another factor is that uh, she had been on an antidepressant, but had um, abruptly stopped taking it um, a few weeks before she passed. Nobody mm -hmm. knows why. Um, but that is that, you know, as we know now, you know, antidepressants can sometimes have the, um, you don't go on them Opposite correctly or effect. come off of them correctly. They can, they can um, induce um, some mood swings. I mean, who knows if that would be true weeks later. But um, she was at the time effectively untreated for depression. Mm. Um, so that's probably another factor. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Well, one of the things you mentioned that I can definitely relate to is having all of these questions after the fact and not being left with any guidance, a, a note specifically. Mm -hmm. Before I get into this next uh, piece here, I do want to say that some of this may be triggering to anyone who has lost a loved one to suicide. Um, there are definitely graphic details around uh, and any suicide that happens. And I, my personal belief is those things aren't discussed enough and they are often viewed as very taboo. Um, I think there is a morbid curiosity around suicide specifically. Like when, when people ask me, how did your dad die? And I said, well, he actually took his own life. I can see the gears turning of them wanting to know how did it happen? How did it happen? How did he do it? And very few people actually ask that question, which I do appreciate because it it could make some people very uncomfortable. But for, for me, my dad, if you want to call it a note, he left a note. It was scribbled on the back of an envelope. And all it said was my first drop since Easter see, I told you I could do it. And that was rubber banded around a half empty vodka bottle. So no answers there and about a thousand questions. Um, you told us you could do what? What are you what what is he insinuating that he told us he could do that he could not drink or that he was serious about taking his life? I, I, I really I've spent countless hours in the last five years trying to figure out just what the hell he meant. And, you know, I've, I've often thought about the discovery of my dad. Um, at, at the time that my dad died, he was not driving. He had lost his license and was relying on my mom and sister primarily to get rides to and from work. And uh, that, that day, my sister went to pick him up from work and he was nowhere to be found. He wasn't where she normally picked him up. 
So, of course, some panic started setting in. Uh, we went to all the places we thought he could be. He wasn't there. So my mom and sister went back up to his job and one of the managers met them there. Uh, they thought, you know, at this point, they're thinking maybe something happened. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he passed out and they uh, went into the garage behind uh, the main office building up there. And they found my dad hanging from the rafters of the garage. I don't know why I feel compelled to share that. I don't think I've shared about that very openly, but it is something that, you know, the, the method is something that is definitely unique and impactful. Um, when I think about my dad being in those final moments, it's really, really hard to imagine what feelings he was feeling. Um, I've done a lot of writing about it. And, you know, what came to mind for me is, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore the man on the ceiling and it's harder to know what he must have been feeling. Mm -hmm. It's, it's something I've had a really hard time coming to terms with. And the fact that my mom and sister were the ones that found him and I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, I hate that. I hate that. I don't have that shared experience with them and they have to endure now an entire like new tier of pain on top of what we're all feeling and losing him. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a lot there, but what I'm curious about is your thoughts on some of that morbid curiosity that people have around suicide. And do you personally view it as something that may be inappropriate, that there are inappropriate things that can be asked, or do you view it as something that may be actually be helpful to share with other people? I, you know, I listened to your last, the one with Betsy, and I remember you said in that interview, um, that there was a rumor floating around at your dad's memorial that he had actually passed from a heart attack instead of suicide and that that was not okay with you. <laughs> you yeah. you wanted the truth out there. And I agree with that. Um, and um, as a kid, I was very ill-equipped um, to know how to answer that question. And in fact, I avoided it. Um, I didn't lie about it, but I avoided it. Mm -hmm. And usually, sometimes I would avoid even telling people that my mom was dead yeah. um, to avoid even the pathway to that question. Um, I remember when I was in uh, college, I was dating this guy and we were at his um, parents' house and they had some kind of party with all these upper crust Charlotte people that um, I had never met before. And I had found myself in some conversation with this lady that I had never met before. And she, I don't know why she was asking me all these questions, but she was asking me about my parents. And I think I had to say, well, my mom has passed. Mm -hmm. And of course the dreaded moment comes, oh, well, how did she pass? And I remember this surge of anger in the moment um, because I had been aware in previous moments of the need. It kind of felt like I had to protect the person asking me from mm. my trauma. Mm. It wasn't necessarily about me. It was that if I tell them this, they're going to act this way and that way. And they're going to feel sorry for me. And um, it's going to be an entirely, and they're going to see me a different way. And I hate that, you know, and I remember in that moment feeling this flash of anger at this urge I felt to protect her from my trauma. <laughs> and, and I think I just stared her down and I was like, oh, she died by suicide. And I, mm -hmm. I just relished the, the moment of like, she didn't know what to say. Cause I'm sure she thought I was gonna say something like cancer or, you know, something that she could build a conversation around. But, um, but I remember she kind of recovered and was like, oh, well, how did she, how did she kill herself? 
and I walked away because <laughs> I was like, I am not, like, this is not something I can talk about in this setting. And I had not really talked about it, um, except I think I, I, I don't even know if I had really willingly talked about it in therapy at that point. Um, I was kind of living myself with it, um, by myself with it. Uh, and so going back, I guess the story for me is um, I was in seventh grade. And um, I remember the morning, I remember the morning my mom died as being like, I, when I look back on this day, the morning feels like a very different day, like a different day entirely mm. than the rest of the day. I don't know if that makes sense. But when yeah. I was piecing my memories together, I was like, that couldn't have been the same morning that, of the day that she died. But then I remembered, I realized it was. Mm. <laughs> it was weird, but I have, I have a very specific memory of leaving for school. And um, the way our house was set up was that all our bedrooms were on the top floor. And uh, I was walking down the hallway and at the end of the hallway is my parents' bedroom and the door was open. And I remember looking in and she was in bed, which she had been in bed a lot lately. She was no longer getting up in the mornings, like when we were going to school. Um, and it must have been kind of normal at this point because um, I looked in her, looked in her bedroom, she was in bed facing away from the door so I couldn't see her face I couldn't see if she was actually awake or asleep and I remember making the decision like I'm not going I'm not going to say anything um and I was like I guess she doesn't I don't know if I had more thoughts like I don't know if I felt annoyed or irritated like why isn't she like you know up um I do think I wrote in my journal during some, you know, leading up to this moment, like I, that I was frustrated that she was in bed a lot and yeah. not around. Uh, and so I went on to school. Um, I don't remember anything about the school day at all. Uh, it was, I guess, a normal school day. I was in seventh grade. I was kind of a social outcast at this particular school. I didn't have a lot of friends, um, looked completely awkward. <laughs> Like mm. it was not a great time for me already. Yeah. Um, and so I remember me and my sister, I have two younger sisters, me and my middle sister, um, we I think we both took the bus home and um we both got home around the same time. We walked in the front door and I remember saying to her, I was like, Do you smell gasoline? Mm. And she was like, Yeah, I guess. Like, uh, and I was like, I feel like I smell gasoline. Um but I didn't think much of it. It wasn't like a super strong smell. So I was like, whatever. And so um, I think I got a snack and I went up to my bedroom. And at that time, I think I was like depressed myself. So I was like, I went and took like, I started to take a nap because I was like exhausted. Mm -hmm. And um, my sister had gone downstairs or I was downstairs and I was woken up. I don't know what time it was um, by hearing my sister scream. Like she mm -hmm. just screamed. Um, and so I rushed downstairs and she's standing in the doorway from our inside of our house to the inside of our garage. And she's just standing there and she said, I think mom's dead. Mm. Um, and I looked into the garage and the garage door was closed. Um, the van that we had was running. She was in the driver's seat. Driver's door was open and she was just sitting there, um, not moving, um, still in her nightgown. And uh, I couldn't get myself to go in there. Uh, I, I was frozen at the door. My sister before, um, when the moment she screamed, um, it was after she had gone in there to try to 
getter. Um, so at first she didn't think, you know, mom, mom had died. Um, and so she had actually gone in there and then come back out. I couldn't make myself go in there. And all I could do, like, I, I still judge myself for this. Like I, I felt like as the older sister, like I should have been the one <laughs> to find her first and, um, and then do everything after that. But all I could seem to do was tell my sister, cause my sister was like, what do we do? And I was like, I think I told her we need to call dad and we need to call the police and, or some version of that. And so my sister actually called 911 and I was with her. I was right next to her. I just couldn't like get myself to um, do any of it. And then every moment after that was a complete blur. Um, a bunch of neighbors started showing up after EMS showed up. They like pulled her out of the car and we're doing CPR and, you know, she had passed at some point before that. So CPR wasn't working and it was all on the driveway and I'm sitting there watching. <laughs> and I think a neighbor sitting with me on the front stoop, like trying to comfort me, but like nobody knows what to do. And um, I remember my dad just like peeled into like into the driveway. He had like sped from his job home Um and I just remember random people showing up at our house. Like, I think my, I think my choir director showed up at some point. It, mm. <laughs> it was just like, and again, I don't know if those were the same day. Like, it was just like this weird um, collage of memories of like me just sitting in the front yard and crying and like not quite processing what was going on. And um you know, I know that for at least two weeks after that, we all went to go stay at my grandmother's house, who also lived in Raleigh, and my grandmother being the mom of my my mother. And um, my dad was understandably just completely devastated. Um, he seemed to blame himself, um, but wouldn't necessarily say why. Um, and he was actually suicidal. Um, I think we had to watch him for a bit I remember the maybe the day that it happened I was downstairs at my grandmother's house and uh, I could hear him upstairs like saying that he wanted to kill himself mm. and my I think my uncles were up there with him being kind of like no <laughs> you, you don't have that choice like you have to be here um and you know like I was thinking of like so the reason I told the story uh, was because I remember um, we had a funeral for my mom at this really large church in Raleigh and um, it's a church that we had been going to since I was a kid um, and I personally never quite gelled with the church I'm actually now an atheist mm -hmm. <laughs> so I probably was always an atheist I don't know yeah. but uh, but I remember that particular church I didn't gel socially um, with anybody and I remember like what's what I remember about the funeral was that um it's a massive like church so the actual um what's it called like the church part <laughs> what's that part the called? chapel <laughs> the chapel yeah the chapel but it feels like it's bigger than a chapel like the um but you know it, it actually had two stories like it was wow. big um it was full of people uh and, you know, what's remarkable is that, you know, after the funeral, I don't think I heard from any of those people again. Yeah. Uh, I remember getting cards in the mail from kids in my class um, that their parents probably made them write. 
Mm. Uh, but it, 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 nobody wanted to talk about it after that. I remember I kind of felt like I went into this vortex of like isolation after mm. that. Like as far as like who we, the kinds of like friendships that my mom had or like places that she would take me to go play with um, somebody's kids while she talked to the mom, like all of that was gone. And, um, you know, my dad didn't know how to, I think, pick up those pieces and like navigate that. And so, uh, I, you know, I had my own friends, I created my own social life um, after that. But I just remember thinking about like how many people were at the funeral <laughs> and how, how quickly that disappeared um after and I don't know how much of that I, I suspect a large amount of it was because of how she passed um yeah. at that time it, I think everybody you know didn't know what to do with it uh I know my family I know I I don't know if I felt uh, I didn't feel ashamed of my well I don't know like as a kid I think I did feel some shame about it um I don't know if I should have felt I don't think I should have um, but at the time there was no framework. It was a very, I remember the pastor at the funeral, even like, I remember my grandmother was unhappy with his, um, sermon or speech or whatever, because he did mention how suicide is then, <laughs> you know, and it's obviously thinking has changed since then, but, uh, but even that, you know, it was, um, that was the environment that we were in, um, when she passed and my family wasn't. The only person in my family that would talk about it with me was my grandmother, but a lot of her talking about it with me was very blame focused on my dad, who I still lived with and who mm -hmm. I had to make a relationship work with. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, uh, I, you know, it was just kind of this swirling, um, you know, I went from having what I thought was a very boring family to, <laughs> to a very complicated family mm. that I didn't realize I had for so long um and it's continued being that way I would say yeah. <laughs> I really really appreciate you going down that path and sharing that with me mm -hmm. um it's incredibly impactful and powerful to hear and in my opinion very important to share for mm -hmm. us as law survivors not just for us uh in the ability to process our experience and have it be heard. I think it's really important for other people to hear and mm -hmm. learn to be, uh, learn to become comfortable or at least tolerant of the wild discomfort that comes along with hearing something like this. And, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you were talking about being at this party, I believe it's when you were in grad school and mm -hmm. this woman, uh, you know, asking how your mom died and then you say suicide and, uh, and I could feel the feeling. That's when the conversation mm -hmm. usually stops. That's mm -hmm. when someone looks like a deer in headlights and they change the topic or you get that, you get met with that uh, pity that comes along with when you say that. And I, I think that's where the conversation could start. If, mm -hmm if people know how to talk about suicide and if me, if myself as a survivor, if I learn how to share that experience, I've had some unbelievably incredible conversations in that same exact setting by sharing that, yeah, my, my dad uh, took his own life. And then the, you know, ability to relate to other people who have been through something similar, or you're sharing that with someone who has never experienced it before you're 
you know, letting them into a new world and showing them what this is like for people who go through losing a loved one to suicide. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, you, you shared with me maybe some feelings of guilt that came up around not acting, excuse me, not acting the way you feel like you should have in that moment. And it sounds to me like you had a very normal response to discovering something that most people never have to go through in their lives. And you were a 13 year old girl. And it sounds like the freeze response came up for you in that moment. And I personally had a, a different experience. I think I went more into a fight mode. Um, I, my, when my sister called and said, we, we found dad, um, she wouldn't tell me what happened. It's my uncle came to pick me up to bring me up there. And that's when he told me that, you know, your, your dad committed suicide and I made him pull over the car and I just have bits and pieces of this memory, but I, I, I kind of blacked out from the raw emotion. I don't know if it was anger or what it was I was feeling in that moment. But when I came to my knuckles were completely bloodied. He was yelling at me to get back in the car. Um, and yeah, it's just interesting how differently uh, different people respond in, in these situations. And you talked about how a lot of that day is a blur for you. And I, I think it's really interesting the way that trauma impacts our memory processing because on a normal day in a normal moment, like right now, I couldn't tell you very much about what happened once I got to my dad's work. That's very blurry for me. But then I've had these moments that I've come to realize are flashbacks where I am re-experiencing every single second that happened that night from pulling up and seeing the ambulances and the police cars with their lights on to being greeted by the EMT when I got there and he was treating me for what he thought was a broken hand. It wouldn't let me see my family. It's, it's interesting that like on off switch between I can't really remember what happened and oh my God, I can't stop remembering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's, it's, it's funny. You know, what, what's weird for me too, is that, um, as you know, I've gone into a career, I'm a psychologist now, and I actually specialized in treating PTSD, which is not funny, but mm -hmm. it is funny. Um, because I didn't find a community, um, that I felt like I could talk about this with for a very mm -hmm. long time. And, um, our family didn't talk about it so much. My, my grandmother would talk about it, but it was the blame game. Nobody talked about the impact that it could have had or that it was having on me and my sisters. Mm. Um, you know, there were efforts to get us into therapy. Unfortunately, the therapist we were going to was also seeing my dad and it just didn't, I don't think I ever opened up um, in that setting. Um, and I didn't go back to therapy until grad school. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh that being said um i i had not categorized what happened to me as anything other than i lost a parent you know in a really horrifying way that people don't know what to, to do with mm. um so it just kind of hung out in my head you know as this thing that happened i could i could say it you know i could answer questions um i could put it down as a risk factor on you know paperwork but here I was training to be a psychologist. Um, I remember I, I got a postdoc where my primary rotation was working on the PTSD clinical team at a VA. And mm. um, I somehow went through the process of learning what PTSD was <laughs> and how to diagnose it and yeah. how to treat it. 
without really thinking deeply about, and I don't think I have PTSD, I have more of a generalized anxiety disorder, but I have gone through a trauma that I had never categorized it that way in my head. Mm. And here I was telling my patients, like, you know, I was doing it for them. Um, I was telling them what a trauma was and I was confirming for them, yes, this is a trauma or no, that's not a trauma, that is this. And um, it's, I look back on that now and I'm like, wow, <laughs> like I was really doing some parallel processing without realizing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I actually still struggle with it. You know, I was nervous going into this interview, like, oh, I usually don't talk about this. And what if I, for me, it's like, I'm very, like I said, with that conversation with the woman at the party, like, I'm so aware of like, what is what I'm going to say do to other people? You know, what is mm. it going to do to them? Um, because I think primarily of that response that people have, like the deer in headlights, like you kind of feel like you just shattered a moment for yeah. them. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and and then also in my work, it's not appropriate for clinicians to share their, you know, the sessions are not about our, our stuff. So I wouldn't share it, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate to share it with my patients. And so I kind of continued on in this vein of like, I'm, you know, I, I am an expert in this or that. Um, but when it came to myself, uh, it, it has been very hard, I think, to kind of deeply examine, like, what does this do to me? Mm -hmm. um beyond like how I feel about people um or you know but what how is it fed into the symptoms that I deal with now um and I'm starting to do that work even me agreeing to do this podcast you know like that's part of it for me um I'm much earlier on in my journey I think than some of the people that you've interviewed <laughs> so. oh. and I, I think that's incredibly helpful for folks who are going to hear this um mm -hmm. I believe I'm like at ground zero in terms of my journey really just starting to become open to the idea of integrating my dad's suicide into my life in a way that's healthy uh, rather mm -hmm. than trying to run a couple miles ahead of it or numb it out completely. Um, there, there are two things kind of on my mind right now. The first being when, when I met with Dr. David Shredway, he brought something up on that episode that really, really stuck with me. And I'm curious about how it's played out in your life. He talked about how a family system responds to suicide traditionally, and he talked mm -hmm. about three common reactions, how families either turn toward each other, turn away from each other, or turn on each other. And I've seen in my own experience how all three of those things have happened sometimes at the same exact time. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if, if that has been true in your experience as well and how that has shifted over time. Mm -hmm. All of them have happened in my family. Um, I have turned towards my two sisters. Um, I have two younger sisters. I have one older half-sister from a previous relationship of my dad. She had moved out. She was in another state when all of this happened. Um, I have two younger sisters. We all have the same mom and dad. And uh, we have become close as adults. Um, we weren't so close in the direct aftermath of her loss. Um, we were at different ages developmentally. My youngest sister was seven. Um, my middle sister was 11, I believe. Mm. I was 13. Um, I think we were just trying to survive yeah. at that time. Uh, and so we weren't terribly close. And then of course I went to college and um, was the first to kind of leave. Uh, and, 
you know, I'm close with them. So it's been very interesting to see how we've all treated it um, as adults. Um, I'm the only family member besides my older half sister that's moved away from Raleigh. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, Raleigh is actually a huge trigger point for me. I go back, I, I don't avoid it necessarily, but whenever I'm in Raleigh, I'm just surrounded by um, everything. It's really mm -hmm. hard for me to be there. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we've turned toward each other. Turning against happened, um, still happens. Um, mm. I am probably the most outspoken person in my family. Um, I don't know if that's a result. I feel like it's a result of uh, the loss of my mom um, and the field that I've chosen to go into. So because I'm outspoken, um, I, I think some of my family members don't um, understand or, you know, like they, they're not used to dealing with with emotions and thoughts and feelings and memories and history and the way that I'm choosing or trying to deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely a family culture of let's not talk about it. You yeah. know, let's talk about today. Let's talk about the weather. Let's act like things are okay. And that just doesn't work for me. Um, and so me and my dad have had a very uh, conflictual relationship um, ever since my mom passed and it continues to be like, we're still hammering it out. Mm. Um, and I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where we are, you know, able to feel, um, I don't want to say at peace because I feel like I am at peace with certain aspects of it, but, you know, we, we don't understand each other. Um and I have not gotten along. I don't want to say it's not like there's been a lot of conflict, but um, I'd never had a great relationship with my stepmother, who was the person he began dating um, within a few months of my mom's passing. So they're still together. Um, and so I kind of felt like I just got ejected from my family a bit over time. Um, some of it was me ejecting myself. <laughs> and yeah. some of it, I think, was... Um, me just going in a different direction in my life and um, my family not necessarily wanting to be in on that journey um, with me or not knowing how to relate to me, maybe. Yeah. Um, my sisters have navigated that much better. Um, we all have, we've had conflict. We have um, a lot of differences in how we look at our family dynamics, but um, I think there's a lot more understanding and willingness to understand in our relationships than there has been in other yeah. areas. Um, and then I, I know I mentioned my grandmother before. She was a big presence um, in our lives, uh, especially all throughout our childhood, but especially after my mom passed. And um, she passed earlier this year. Uh, and uh, I was very close with her, but that was also, I kind of, I feel like if I could have, if I could guess how my relationship with my mom would have proceeded, it might've been very similar to my relationship with my grandmother. It's like the closest proxy I can think of um, because yeah. they were very similar um, in terms of high expectations and uh, but I think my grandmother was freed up you know how grandparents are you know they're 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 able to let go of some of their more <laughs> yeah. problematic parenting practices and, and and so my grandmother didn't put as much pressure on me as I think my mom would have um, but you know, it was still a complicated relationship um, because there was this constant triangulation happening um, with her relationship with my dad. And it was only happening to me. Um, she didn't disclose these things to my two younger sisters. So I think a lot of my 
ejection from the family was like a result of like a, a combination of things. Like I just knew too much. <laughs> I guess is one way to look at it. Um, so that that yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting how all three of those things can happen at the same time, or how they shift over time. What what I've realized is something like a suicide in a family is not just an event that happens and you figure out how to carry on past it. It, mm-hmm. for me, felt like an atomic bomb being dropped in my immediate circle and mm-hmm. scrambling in the aftermath to figure out what are we now as a family unit? How do we coexist? I feel like we lost such a big piece of that stability and groundedness that my dad brought to the family. So I I really appreciate you sharing that. And it definitely resonates and makes a lot of sense on this end. I I do want to shift gears and kind of put on the clinician lens for a second, because as you mentioned, you have found yourself into now being in a role serving folks, or at least you have throughout your career serving folks who have dealt with things similar to yourself. And what I'm curious about is the time between losing your mom and making that decision to get into the field that you are today as a psychologist. I'm wondering, is that a conscious choice that was made or is that a subconscious uh, (laughs) calling that somehow brought you and you found yourself here? I, I, yeah. Well, it happened. I, I don't know. Uh, I I don't. I was not a person that knew I was going to become a psychologist at all. Um, I think what happened was I went away to undergrad and uh, fell into the most popular major, <laughs> which was psychology. <laughs> and then and then me being me, I was like, well, I guess I'll just see this all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> and kept going. Um, that being said, I, I I don't regret my career. I feel like you know, even though I made the choice kind of, um, without realizing I was making it, uh, it didn't feel like an intentional choice, but more kind of like, I need to find something to do. Um, obviously I was drawn to it. Um, I think there was a lot more going on behind the scenes that I was trying to work out within myself, um, that played a role in it. Um, Sometimes I don't like talking about it, you know, to random people because there's that stereotype out there about therapists, right? That, you know, all of us have our own, like, blah, blah, blah. And, but who yeah. doesn't, you yeah. know? Um, so show me somebody who hasn't been through something in their life, you know, <laughs> whether they're an engineer or, you know, any other profession. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think I mentioned earlier, like, I wasn't, I wasn't using my own experience as much in the beginning of my career. Um, I was, I don't know if I was consciously individuating from it. I, I don't, I wasn't ignoring it. You know, I did start going to therapy. I've had many wonderful therapists, um, you know, since grad school. Um, and I have been trying to process it. Uh, but I haven't, I still don't know quite what to do with it in mm. my career. Um, it still feels, I still get a feeling that fight, flight, freeze response um, whenever a patient is talking about something similar to what I've gone through. Um, it, it comes up when a patient is experiencing acute suicidality and I'm I'm doing my job as a clinician to a safety plan with them and, and try mm. to talk about alternatives. I feel an intense pressure on myself um, to, uh, you know, help them through that um the right way uh and um 
you know, I, I'm always suspicious that I'm not going to be good at it because of what happened to me. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's been a weird, you know, I, I wish I was one of those clinicians that had a clear statement to make about here's how it inspired me. Right. <laughs> I, I don't have it. Um, it feels like a series of like almost coincidences that I ended up being an expert on PTSD at all. Um, and, I, you know, I don't specialize in, in suicidality. Um, obviously, I encounter it um, as every clinician does. Um, and I have started to try to make more sense of it. Um, and I have to credit uh, the first time I really noticed that there was a community of survivors was I was on internship back in 2011 in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was one of three interns. Um, only three, which is actually a pretty small number at different internship sites. And one of them is was Melinda Moore, who had actually lost her own husband um, to suicide a few years prior. And part of her you know, journey was um, she went, she changed her career, went back to grad school and was becoming a psychologist. And she's actually now one of the prominent researchers on um, suicide loss. Uh, she would be a great person actually for you to interview. Absolutely. Um, but I remember we were at some point, we were all kind of getting to know each other, uh, me, her and Carrie, the other uh, intern. And uh, I think I, you know, I, I had no problem disclosing at any, you know, that I had lost my mom to suicide. And she was like, oh, you're a survivor. I had never heard that oh, wow. before in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was prepared for the other kind of conversation, just handled with more finesse because we're all in mental health, right? Yeah. And I was prepared for it to be kind of, oh, man, you know, and then move on. But she's like, oh, no, like, and, and she, you know, sh shared her story. And um, I, I, you know, she's an associate professor at EKU, East Kentucky University now, and, and this is the majority of what she does. And I, um, she, I credit her with opening my eyes to the fact that there were books, there were people who had been researching this, there are, there are other survivors that talk about it. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, um, I still, you know, at the time I didn't know what to do with it, you know, but I really appreciated um, the fact that she invited me into that community and let me know that it existed. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it takes that one person for each of us to show mm -hmm. us that there, there is a way through this and it usually involves connecting with other people who have been through something mm -hmm. similar. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, your experience has made you hesitant about taking on clients who are either dealing with their own suicidal ideation or have survived a suicide loss? I would say the opposite. I, I am attracted to, um, I would say more clients that have survived a suicide loss. Mm. Um, I still do feel a bit anxious dealing with active suicidality. And um, I think that's a combination of things. I think all clinicians are kind of anxious <laughs> about it because we all want to do a good job. You know, there's there's so much at stake. Um, yeah. But uh, but I but I am drawn to survivors of suicide loss. Um, and I have met a few of them. I'm also drawn to people who have been dealing with suicidality and are at the stage where they're open to kind of talking more about it. And because um, I find that to be, I, I feel like I learned something from all of my patients. And I, and I really valued hearing, um, hearing what goes on internally for people who have dealt 
with thoughts of suicide or made attempts in their life. Um, I, I think earlier in my career, it was really difficult. There was a part of me that really wanted to come out and say, like, it's so devastating, you know, don't, you know, I, I was so focused on like the aftermath of it. And I think it was, I had to intentionally turn my attention to like, what the, what is this person going through though? Let me try to understand that because I had been on the other side of it for so long. Um, and I think part of that is a function of um, my grandmother for the rest of her life. Um, I think she really tried to understand what my mom had been going through. Um, she did all kinds of, when she was using the internet, she would do all kinds of research on the internet, which we know uh, doesn't always um, end up um, with valid information. Yeah. Um, but she had all sorts of theories, you know, from thyroid disorders to the antidepressant to my dad and, um, and none of them, you know, focused anything on like, well, what was the family dynamic, you know, because I think mm -hmm. at that point she would have, she would have had to look at herself a bit of like, you know, not that again, I don't think she was the cause either, but that she was, she was also part of this family culture, you know, of, um, you know, we don't talk about these things or we want to make sure we're looking our best on the outside, you know, and so I remember there was one day, I swear I have a point, there was one day when I was in high school um, and my grandmother, again, had gone on one of these, like, you know, she, she was really focused on trying to control my emotional reaction to my mom. She really mm. wanted me and my sisters to feel, to, to remember how great a mom she was and to um, not be angry at her for dying by suicide and mm -hmm. I remember I looked at her one day after this had been going on for who knows how long and I said you know nanny I I believe I have the right to feel how I want to feel um about my mom and I remember she kind of got this shocked look on her face like she um didn't expect me to set a boundary and to, to be fair she didn't touch it again she respected my boundary um but I I have a lot of anger towards my mom um and I don't know if that's fair you know because uh, as a clinician I have learned um that you know most people who are who have chosen suicide it's not because they want to hurt other people um it's because they're hurting themselves they're the the impact of their loss they have they see through a very distorted lens um yes. which is yes. nobody needs me you know, and so therefore this won't impact people. It'll impact them in a positive way. Sometimes is how they're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, obviously that's not true, <laughs> but um, that is the mindset. Um, and I know that mindset I've had it myself sometimes when I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, as a survivor though, uh, for me, as a survivor of a mother who died um, when I was a kid, uh, I, had, I had and have a lot of anger about that decision and um the comparison i use i don't know if it makes sense is that uh you know nobody questions a kid's right to be angry at a parent that just up and leaves during their childhood yeah. right you know they're like i'm done with parenting i'm going to move to minnesota right that person said yeah i don't have a great relationship with my dad he's in minnesota he hasn't talked to me since i was 13. Mm. you'd be like oh man that 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 jerk you know of course yeah. you're angry right? Um, somebody dies by suicide. Apparently, we like to question how they feel <laughs> about that person. Um, at least I've experienced that. And um, I kind of look at it like, well, hey, my mom 
chose to permanently move somewhere I can never find her again. You know, mm. um, how am I supposed to feel like, why can't I be angry about that? Um, so I guess coming back to the clinical work, um, that's been one of my struggles is like, I know that I have this anger about um, suicide and how it impacts other people. And I, I, it's really important to me that that's not helpful in a therapy room. You know, like that's not going to motivate somebody to not have suicidal thoughts again. Um, and it's very much about, you know, my own processing of being left um, and how complicated that is, you know, to go through that with a parent. Uh, and I, I, I think it has been helpful to kind of like, I, what I value about what I've done is that I feel like at the very least, you know, I have named my difficult emotions and I'm aware that they're there. And they do come in handy when, I, of course, I'm working with somebody who has had similar experience to me. Um, so I can validate, yeah, like complicated feelings, you know, feeling angry, not understanding, like those are all, you know, I get that I've been there. Um, I find that it is harder sometimes for me to connect to people who are actively feeling suicidal, um, for the same reasons. Mm. Um, and that, and that we need to be able to connect. That's the way that you, um, you know, help somebody who is feeling suicidal is to build connections because they feel like they don't have any sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's complicated. It it definitely is. And that anger is uh, a hard, probably the hardest for me emotion to wrestle with because mm -hmm. we're taught from a very young age to not speak ill of the dead, right? So it's it's really hard to integrate that and reconcile that, you know, do not speak ill of the dead with, well, my mom killed my mom or my dad killed my dad that objectively really sucks. So mm -hmm. how do I, how do those two things coexist? Uh, that that's been an interesting part of my process. And, and like you have said, totally entitled to feel that anger. Um, because at the end of the day, regardless of how distorted the person was when they made that choice, they still made a choice to move to Minnesota. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know why they would pick Minnesota, especially this time of year. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. And it was helpful for you to put it in that context. I want to give you a chance for maybe a little plug. Um, I know that in your clinical work, you use what are called evidence-based therapy protocols. Um, and just a couple that I'm familiar with, and I, I believe you use as well, are acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, I do not have direct experience with either as uh, on the receiving end. I, I was in a mm -hmm. year-long DBT group mm -hmm. therapy session. So mm -hmm. I do at least understand that. And what I'm what I'm wondering is first, if you could explain <laughs> much more succinctly and uh, informatively than I could, um, what uh, evidence-based therapy protocols are, and secondarily, um, I'm wondering how they could help someone who is wrestling with the topic of suicide, either feeling suicidal or having lost mm -hmm. a loved one to suicide. So, um, so yes, so cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral theory is um, a big, it's kind of one of the most researched forms of psychotherapy um, out there. Um, it's definitely not the only one. Um, but what we what we mean by evidence-based therapies is that there have been um, research studies that support that they are in fact effective in reducing the targeted symptom 
mm. um, whatever they're trying to address. And so um, for them to do that, we obviously have to be more or less consistent in how we implement them. Um, and the idea is that if something works, then that means um, you don't necessarily have to continue going to therapy in the same way for the same problem indefinitely. And that's not to say that people can't come back. I mean, I've come back to therapy so many times, and I think dealing with loss, not just suicide, but any loss is a lifelong process. So in no way do I mean like, oh, you, you know, good therapy means you go for three months and then you're done. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I do mean by that is that um, therapy, I think, is aided by having specific goals in mind for particular um, episodes of therapy. So uh, and I find that when we have goals in mind and when we think of it in a time limited way, meaning like eventually we want to work towards graduation. Um, what I like is that it teaches my clients to really take on the skills and be really active in their therapy work um, because the idea is that they are in charge of changing something or developing a new relationship with something in their mind. And that um, I want them to not need therapy to do that. I don't yeah. want to become a fixture of um, you need me in order to function. Um, so that's kind of my philosophy and why I use evidence-based therapies, because I want to make sure that like whatever I'm doing, um, it's not just because it worked with this one person, but it's not going to work with anybody else, right? right, right. Um, that being said, um, therapy is intensely personal um, and you can't talk the same way to one client that you do to another. Everybody has different life experiences. And so... Um, you know, while the therapy protocol provides kind of the outline for what we're doing and it helps inform us of like, what are our goals and how, like, what examples are we going to use? What kind of skills are we going to work on? What kind of information are we going to focus on here? Um, how that person moves through therapy is entirely unique. Um, and the amount of sessions they need is entirely unique sometimes. And um so, so cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Um, it is focused and it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a parent to or a sibling of DBT, um, but, but it's sure. kind of the, the old guard. I feel like DBT was developed, you know, like a little, it's a little newer, but not that new. Um, but uh, DBT is actually more similar to ACT, which I'll get, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But CBT is thinking about like how we understand the world impacts our emotional responses to um, basically everything and then our actions. Um, so the majority of therapy is focused on like what's going on in the here and now. Um, but uh, it's also focused on where we got these, um, you know, these rules for life in the first place. Uh, so mm -hmm. otherwise we call those beliefs, automatic thoughts, uh, dysfunctional thoughts, uh, you know, kind of that uh, framework that we understand the world through. And the idea with CBT is that, you know, probably lots of people before they go to therapy, you know, they've already tried just switching off an emotion or saying like, just stop, just relax. You know, <laughs> like yeah. that doesn't work. Um, our, our minds don't respond to just changing the channel on an emotion. Um, our minds need reasons to, to decide to feel differently or to have a different experience. And so CBT focuses on evaluating um, how you're seeing, like your perspective, your thoughts, like the typical beliefs that are kind of organizing how you perceive things and looking at whether those are accurate. Are they working for you? Where do they come from? Um, a lot of times our automatic 
thoughts or beliefs they um they were born from a particular experience in life maybe they were very useful in a previous kind of environment not so useful in the environment we're in now but we still have them mm. <laughs> we're still there yeah. um and so uh, CBT has a number, like there's so many different offshoots of CBT that specialize like on chronic pain, insomnia, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, OCD. Um, so there's all these different iterations of it, but it kind of boils down to that concept. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy um, or ACT is kind of like, I guess CBT could be second wave, ACT is third wave. So it's kind of, it came along after um, behavioral therapy and CBT. And um, it's similar, it's very behavioral um, in some ways, but um, mentally and cognitively, it's less about getting into um, kind of like changing your thoughts and more about the idea of we can't control our thoughts and emotions in our minds whether we wanted to or not like the whole think of a pink elephant now don't think of a pink elephant yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do it right um and the fact that uh we tend to look from our minds then rather than at our minds and when we're looking from our minds we're not necessarily questioning what we're looking from mm -hmm. right it's whatever that thought is in our minds so for example if we take suicidal thoughts which tend to be um temporary in nature uh, they are, you know, obviously an extreme response. I like to think of suicidal thoughts for, in some, you know, not all cases maybe, but in a lot of cases, um, they're a functional response to a problem. Um, yeah. It is an idea, it's it's kind of the idea of escape um, from a problem that we don't know how to solve and that we've probably encountered again and again and again. Um, so in a way it's kind of a solution, but not necessarily a rational solution. Um, and so if we take that, we say, okay, looking from your mind, you have a suicidal thought, you know, the natural thing for us to do when we have a thought in our mind is we, we go with it, <laughs> like, you know, um, and there's certain situations in life where we have to think that way. Like if you're driving to work, you can't sit there in your car while you're driving being all existential and like, hmm, you know, I feel like I should turn left here, but where's <laughs> that coming from? Like, you just have to go with it. But there are certain other um, kind of lots of other experiences in life where we can be more reflective of like, what is this thought? Where do you know, like, why? What do I want to latch on to this thought or do I want to let it go? Right. Mm. Um, so the acceptance piece means many things in the therapy. It's definitely not trying to mean accept that your life sucks. <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. that. <laughs> but it is saying, you know, we do have to accept that life comes with pain. Um, and that a lot of the ways we approach problems in life um, are predicated on the idea that if we just do this, this, and this, then we'll get better at this, this, and this, and we won't mm. have this problem anymore. And we can't solve most of life's problems that way. And we also can't guarantee that we're not going to experience pain in the future just by doing the right things. And we can spend an awful lot of time trying to do all the right things um, or avoiding uh, and yet, you know, when, while we're doing that, life is passing us by, right? We're not doing things that we actually want to do, um, because we're telling ourselves, like, I have to wait till this thought doesn't occur to me, right? Suicidal thoughts. I have to wait till I never have suicidal thoughts again before I go into a relationship. I want to be my healthiest self, right? And what if your suicidal thoughts just kind of like our minds are weird, right? What if it just comes up every so often? What does yeah. that mean? Does that mean you don't deserve to pursue something meaningful to you? 
Mm. And what if we just developed a different relationship with what that thought means? The fact that it doesn't have to mean much, you know, um, we look at it as like a functional response or just like a temporary thought. And then in a few minutes, you'll have a seconds, you'll have a new one. Um, and we can have choice in which thoughts we decide to kind of that one's the one I want to go with or that one's the yeah. one I want to focus on. So I'm always, I'm always very horrible at explaining act. It's such a complicated thing to explain. And I explain it differently every time. But that is one way of explaining it. That definitely landed with me. I, I, I feel like that was a very uh, succinct explanation of it. And, and I can certainly see how something like CBT would be very helpful for issues around suicide, because mm -hmm. whether it's suicidal ideation or losing a loved one to suicide, I think there are a entire onslaught of cognitive distortions that come along with that. You mm -hmm. touched on some of them earlier, some of the distortions around feeling suicidal. My loved ones will be better off without me. Mm -hmm. I can't take this pain anymore. This pain is going to last forever. And you also touched on, I think earlier, some of the distortions that come along with losing a loved one to suicide. Uh, why didn't I do more? This is Steve's fault. Um, I, I just think there are so many on both ends of that spectrum that come up. So yeah, CBT definitely sounds like a, a good modality to apply there. Mm -hmm. I, I do just have one more question. I feel like we've touched on a lot of what I was hoping to talk about today. So I, I just have one more question that I would like to leave our listeners with. And then I would like to give you an opportunity to plug anything or talk about anything that maybe we didn't touch on that you were hoping we would. And this is a total shift of gears. So if you're willing to come with me on this one, what I'm wondering is what you would like to leave those listening, what what you would like to leave them with in terms of something you would like them to know or remember about your mom. So, gosh, I, I would like people to know that my mom, um, despite how my, my brain frames, you know, what comes up, you know, speaking of act, you know, my brain likes to come up with all sorts of particular memories and thoughts when mm -hmm. I think of my mom. And a lot of it is completely connected to the nature of her death, not her life. Yeah. And I have to intentionally focus on her life sometimes because her death is so huge in my mind, um, in terms of my relationship to myself. Um, and when I think of her as a person, um, you know, I think, like I said before, she was very creative. She, uh, she at one point, I think, wanted to start um, a little side business where she did some graphic design stuff, and she was really good at it. And uh, I think her name for it was going to be Paw Prints because her initials were P A W. That's so Actually, cool. Actually, one of my tattoos is a paw print. <laughs> so cool <laughs> for her. Um, and you know, she. Uh, she was a nurse and um, I don't know if she ever wanted to be anything besides a nurse, but uh, I know that she was um, really good at her job and, uh, you know, in my positive moments with her, uh, she was a very caring, attentive parent that really designed her life around us. She became a stay-at-home front mom for most of our lives and, um, was very centered on us 
And uh, about a year ago, me and my sisters gave my dad um, this present called StoryWorth. I don't know if you've heard of it, but basically it, it uh, helps somebody write about their memories and then eventually compiles it into a book. Oh, cool. And uh, so he actually wrote a lot. And again, my dad and I don't necessarily talk a lot about my mom. Um, you know, it's just not something we do. So he actually wrote a lot about her in this book. And it was so special to read, again, filter through him, but to kind of read about her there. And um, I think that, you know, I only wish that I had gotten to know her, you know, more as an adult. Um, I think I would have learned um, a lot from her. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, what's present for me is that I know her through other people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody kind of, kind of saw something different in her. And I think that kind of like you mentioned, uh, she had, she held a lot of stuff close to herself. She didn't let a lot of stuff out necessarily. And uh, so I suspect that she had all kinds of plans for her life and yeah. for herself and mm -hmm. for us um, that I wish could have happened. Um, but I do know that she pushed me to work really hard um, and to try to use perfection in a more healthy way. <laughs> so I, I do have perfectionist tendencies, um, but I know that her support and her belief in my abilities during my childhood definitely contributed to where I went after she died. Um, and I'm proud of that. Uh, and I think she would be proud of me, but, um, that's one big thing I would like to keep it right now. I, I think she'd be proud of you as well. And I really appreciate you sharing that with me. The reason I ask that question as we wrap things up is, uh, it, it, I, I think about the day of my dad's funeral, the, the priest who gave the sermon and was just involved through the wake and the funeral is a, is a gentleman that's been involved with my mom's side of the family for a long time. He actually married my mom and dad and agreed to do uh, the, the sermon at my dad's funeral. And one of the last things he said um, was, Let's, let us just remember that Rob, my dad's name, Rob's life is not defined by his final choice. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you mentioned, unfortunately, that's a trap we fall into when we lose someone to suicide or hear about someone who has died by suicide. That puts them in a box that's pretty small. And what's outside of that box is their entire existence. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that with me. I do want to give you a chance to uh, share anything else that we didn't touch on or ask any questions that you may have before we wrap up. Hmm. I think we touched on almost everything um, <laughs> that I can think of that's relevant. Um, I think one thing I didn't talk about was, and you've probably mentioned in other interviews, is the, the self-blame that we mm. get. Um, you know, I don't have as much, I have some second guessing as far as like my actions when we found my mom and like, you know, I was stuck in the freeze response and, and my sister probably was too, but you know, I was giving her directions. Um, but I think you, I don't know if you feel this way, but as a child of somebody that died by suicide, I think something I've, I think I'll always continue to struggle with is like, why didn't she want to stay for me? Um, yeah. And that's the toughest thing. I think to think about, especially yeah. as a parent, because I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine doing that with my kids, you know, kind of being like, oh, peace out, you know, like good mm. luck. Mm. Um, and so I have a lot of uh, 
that's I guess going back to CBT that's one of my automatic thoughts um yeah. it's like and it bleeds you know whether you like it or not it bleeds into like other areas of your life like you start to think like oh like other people don't want me you know so that's something I've had to do a lot of work on and that I think I know that wasn't in her head um I have to hope <laughs> she wasn't the type of person um that I think would have had that in her head of like not caring um about our future um but that is um it's a hard one to get out of your head and I've always been interested in like how other survivors feel about that like do they also feel is there a sense of rejection that feels very personal um how do you deal with that you know mm. yeah thank you for sharing that and I definitely understand the feeling um, I, I think I've struggled with feelings of abandonment from the time I was a young child. And this definitely struck that chord for me. Mm -hmm. These days, I don't feel as in touch with that feeling of how could he do this or how could he leave us to deal with this? I know it's it's something other members of my family have communicated feeling quite often. I imagine that is compounded uh, drastically by being a child. Um, and having to cope with that loss where you still really needed your mom. Um, mm -hmm. And it's probably really easy to feel like she left, left you to deal with a lot of, a lot of raising yourself maybe. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely understand and appreciate you sharing that. And uh, you know, just as a whole, appreciate you coming and talking to me today. I see mm -hmm. a, an immense amount of bravery just in coming here to share your story um, in the work that you do in helping other people. And as uh, a, a motherless daughter, as you put it, who is now a mother herself, I think all of those things are incredibly brave. Um, you helped me a lot today. And I believe that you're going to help anyone who hears this episode. So Jen, really thank you again for joining me. And I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. For anyone who wants to learn more, um, either about evidence-based uh, therapy protocols or about Jen Howell herself. Um, I'll put her website uh, link in the show notes. There is a, a contact form on there as well. If you had any further questions, would it be okay if folks reached out to you directly, Jen? Of course. Yeah, I welcome it. Um, you know, any questions or, you know, if you want to talk further about um, therapy in general, um, whether you want to therapy with me or not, I'm always happy to have those conversations. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Jen. Talk to you soon. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Bye-bye.